Once again, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And uh, as I said, today is a, a unique and special day as we are, we've sent off uh, a portion of our people to plant a church in Canal Winchester. Today is also another uh, interesting day as we are starting a new sermon series. Uh, we are going to spend seven weeks reading and studying the seven letters to the seven churches which John wrote to in the book of Revelation. Uh, so if you would please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles into the second chapter of Revelation. If you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, the page number will be 965. While you're doing that, I would like to uh, offer you an invitation to take that Bible home. If you don't have a Bible in your house, we want everyone to have God's Word, um, to be able to read it and study it for themselves and not just listen to the guy with the microphone. But also we have a resource wall over there with a bunch of books by the Connect booth. All of those books are free. We want you to take those books. Those books are there to help you understand what God's Word is telling us about Christ. Uh, we believe the more you know about Jesus, the better love and or the greater love and obedience you'll have uh, towards Him. All right, now, for some of us, when we heard the word revelation, um, we may have gotten a bit excited because we love the mystery in this book. For others, uh, when we heard that word revelation, it might have made us nervous because this book honestly has been used to scare people into falling in line with what a church might believe or teach, while for others, it might make us a bit suspicious wondering why we are covering this topic or this, this book and what angle are we going to try and take or what position are we going to teach on when it comes to eschatology. Eschatology, if you don't know, is just the study of the end times, just the study of when Christ is going to return. Now, I get that. I get some of those emotions, so please know that we as the elders are not unaware that this book of the Bible can, can stir us up. It can create some uh, sort of emotions within us. And I'll even tell you, as I've uh, planted this church, Maranatha, this particular uh, topic was, has been one of the more difficult and highly debated conversations that we have had uh, around the end times as a church, because for some reason... The book of Revelation just polarizes people. It just puts people on one side of the room or the other, and it can actually uh, divide us, and we don't want that. So hopefully, what I'm about to say is going to calm all of us down, all right? Uh, because even though we, the elders, do hold a theological position about what is called the millennium, we're not covering in this series the rest of Revelation, which would be necessary in order for us to try and grasp hold of one of the many varying positions on when and how Jesus promises the return. All right? What I'm saying here, what I'm getting at, is that the approach that we're going to be taking with these seven letters will be one of studying the Bible like we always do. Plain and simple, like we always do. We're going to try and utilize the same sort of hermeneutics which we always use for the rest of the Bible, because that's what this is. That's what Revelation is. It's an inspired book in our Bibles, which means it is God's Word for us, and we don't need to treat it any differently than we do the other 65 books of the Bible. Why is it that when we come to Revelation, we throw all of that out the window? We should just deal with it like we do with the other 65 books of the Bible, so that's what we're going to do, because God did not give us His Word to confuse us. Right? He did not give us his word to frustrate us or to make us scared or definitely not to divide us. Rather, he gave us all that we need for life and godliness so that we who belong to him 
would seek with all that we have been given to glorify and enjoy Him all our days while we live and work united to one another. That's what this book is meant to do. It's meant to drive us towards one another and towards Him. So this is how we are going to do this. This is what we are going to do. We are going to read the text. We're going to attempt to figure out who the letter was written to, why was it written to them, what was being revealed to them for us, and then how does this, or what does this reveal about Jesus Christ, right? So we're going to read it, we're going to try to understand it, we're going to try to apply it, and then uh, learn more about Christ. Again, this is just the basic structure of how we study every and any other book in God's revealed word, all right? So hopefully that's comforting. All right, so let's get after it. Let's read uh, the first letter in this series of seven letters, uh, which the Apostle John wrote. And if you would please, if you're able, stand with me in reverence for God as we read his word aloud. This is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, what, uh, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word. We're so grateful, Lord, that you speak to us through it, that we can come and hear from our Father on a daily basis as we read what's been revealed about your Son. Help us in this time, Lord, to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that receives this truth. Please, Lord, give us great faith and deeper wisdom in the things about you. Help us to be the church that you uh, desire for us to be as we seek to understand the churches in the past and look forward to uh, planting more churches in the future. We are grateful, Lord, for your grace and your providence. Help us in this time. Lord, we've come to worship you. In Jesus' name, in the power of your spirit, amen. Now, before we jump into this text, um, let me try to give us a picture of what has happened to John and why he uh, actually wrote this letter. You see, as time went on from the early church, from the time of Acts, the apostles were constantly being persecuted, right? We know this. And eventually, they all were martyred, all right? Or more directly said, they were murdered. They were murdered for their proclamation of the truth. But uh, as historians tell us, despite great persecution, including apparently being boiled in oil, John did not die this way, all right? Instead, he found himself being imprisoned on a remote island called Patmos, and if you're interested, that was located just off the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. And it was there that he received this vision, that he received this revelation before he eventually died of old age in Ephesus, somewhere around 98 AD. And there's an importance to what John writes in this letter. There's an important force 
in this letter uh, in which John writes because Revelation ends in the place where Genesis begins. Revelation ends in the place where Genesis begins. Essentially, that God is sovereign, that he is over all things, and that nothing and no one stands above him as the creator, and that his will shall always be carried out. All right, so let's look at the the beginning and how this letter actually starts. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, it says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So in this way, it's important for us to approach this text with proper reverence, but not mysticism. All right, we can handle this book the same way we handle the rest of the 65 books. So we, don't, we, we should approach this with reverence, but we don't have to approach it with mysticism. As it speaks to us in this series, just as it did the churches back then. This is very practical information given from God the Father to Jesus to impart to John in order for his churches to be informed on how to live and love him. All right? Now let me give us one more what I think is an interesting nugget about these letters before we go on. There's actually a pattern in their order. There's a pattern there. These letters to the churches are actually written down in the order of which city would have been next in line geographically on the delivery route which the carrier of the larger letter would have had to take. Therefore, each letter, yes, is specific to that church which it's written to, but each letter also was to be read by all the other churches so that everyone could benefit from what is true, just like we're doing today. And I find that incredibly encouraging. Maybe it's just me, but I always find it uh, really beautiful and helpful when the things that are in Scripture that may be unknown or can be a bit confusing turn out to just be simple common sense. Right? John, somehow someone got this letter and they were going to go and deliver it to the other churches and they were literally just in line and Ephesus was the first city that he would have come across. It just helps me out. Something about this ease and common sense actually strengthens the evidence for its truthfulness in my mind. All right, so let's get into it. I don't know, maybe that's just me. But in, let me, let me, while we get going, let me reread this passage just to refresh our minds because we're going we're gonna to digest it as a whole. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, 
which is in the paradise of God. Now, some of us may already know, we in fact did a, a sermon series on, uh, on Ephesus or on the book of Ephesians, so you might already know that Ephesus was a prominent city. It was a bit of a, of a metropolis there in Asia Minor at that time, but through all of its commerce and through all of its uh, goings and leavings, it was becoming, or rather it was trending more and more towards this Roman culture. We also know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to them. As I just said, we studied it. Uh, it's in our Bibles because he was the one who actually planted the church there in Ephesus. And according to this text and according to what Christ has said to John, this church was in pretty good order. This church was actually doing a pretty good job on the whole, on the outside at least, or at least from what the people could see. This church seemed like it was flourishing. It was probably growing in number. It was probably gaining influence in this city that it existed within, and so it seemed like it was flourishing. But... As we heard from John, Jesus had a pretty strong rebuke for them, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But before we do, I want to uh, point out something. I want to talk about something that could be a bit confusing, because John says something that he actually uh, sort of uh, addresses in every single letter right at the beginning of each letter. He says this right at the beginning of this one, right there in verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church... In Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, John writes what he is told to write, obviously, but to whom is he writing is the question I'm getting at. To whom is he writing? I hope I've been clear enough already that we all, we all should now know that John is writing for the benefit of the church and the churches. But again, to whom is he writing? After all, Jesus' command is for John to write to the angel in Ephesus. And this is why, this is where it can become confusing, at least at first. Because I don't believe, although some would disagree, I don't believe after much study that John is in fact writing to an actual angel. He's not writing to what we might imagine or describe as this celestial being that hovers over an individual church. Rather, he's writing to the pastor of that particular church as he is the elder that resides in that church. And I came to this conclusion because that word angel that's there in our translations, that word angel is translated from the word anglos, which means messenger. All right? And that word messenger actually depicts, honestly, anyone who delivers God's word to his people. In fact, the same word is used for John the Baptist multiple times there in Matthew 11.10, Mark 1.2, and Luke 7.27. There, it's where uh, the prophecy is being foretold or told about how John is the, the, the the, the completion of that prophecy in Isaiah, but it's talking about how John is the messenger, the one who brings this message about how the Christ has come. Therefore, we find this interpretation to make the most sense because the message from Jesus is for that pastor as well as it is for the church. So John is writing to the pastor for the church because it is for the church just like it is to the pastor. As well, 
This connects to the imagery that this message comes from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who is at the same time walking among the seven lampstands. So this helps with us understanding this imagery. But what does this imagery mean, right? Well, we don't have to wonder because we're told a verse earlier in chapter 1, verse 20. In chapter 1, verse 20, we are told exactly what these seven stars and seven lampstands actually represent. Jesus says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers, same word, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in this letter, along with all the other letters, the other six letters that we're about to cover, what we have is Jesus speaking to the elders of the churches as they are the ones who are meant to deliver God's word to those churches. That's what we have here. And this really comes together as you study chapter 1. It's, it's a real benefit to go back and do that. I hope you do. It really blessed me in a way to understand this, but also because chapter 1 is where John attempts to articulate this vision of what he sees of Jesus. He's there trying to articulate Jesus's real heavenly identity. And it's too glorious for words, but he does his best because what John says is that he sees Jesus and his hair as being perfectly white, revealing his nobility and his holiness. See, our sin doesn't just stain us on the surface. Rather, it permeates our very nature, but our Christ is pure, right? That's why he's depicted or why he's seen as having stark white hair. Uh, John says that his eyes blaze like a flaming fire, showing that nothing can escape the light of Jesus's omniscient gaze. I love that. I stole it from a commentator. His eyes are like fire. Nothing can escape the light of Jesus's omniscient gaze. His feet were like burnished bronze, declaring his perfection and purity. His mouth has a double-edged sword, providing us with this picture that his word is sharp and true and that it will never miss what it aims to pierce. It will either cut with the edge of salvation or it cuts with the edge of condemnation. His voice Bold and commanding like the roar of thundering waters, his hands confident yet tender as he holds the seven stars, again representing the seven messengers as he directs them and supports them in faithfulness. And his face, luminous, like the full strength of the sun, showing us his power and might, a kind of strength that will honestly be terrifying for those who are not saved, but profoundly joyful for those who are redeemed. That is our Christ. At least that is John's attempt at describing our Christ because he's so much more. But John then goes on in this letter and he quotes Jesus by writing, I know your works. After introducing himself and saying, uh, go and speak to the Ephesian church, tell them, I know your works, because Jesus knows everything about us. Again, something that is absolutely terrifying for those who are unsaved, but incredibly comforting to those who are redeemed. Someone knows everything about you, and if you stand in opposition to them, that's frightening. But for those 
who are rescued and redeemed and loved regardless of that, who are known and loved, that is true comfort. And in that promise... Jesus is to be recognized as the one who walks among the lampstands because he's not this distant landlord, as many have said. He's not this, uh, this overlord who sits on his throne on this high peak, unable to be approached while he just dictates his will to his minions. That's not our Christ. The words that John writes are rather from one who moves through and within his churches because he comes to us. He is present with us. This is meant to show us that he is the one who not only brought forth the ignition of every single church, but that he is also the one who continues to tend to every lamp that is his. He is the one who supports. He is the one who strengthens. He is the one who causes us to remain faithful so that we, who now have the opportunity to shine his light, will continue to shine into the darkness. That is the glory of Christ. Now, this imagery is is really uh, pulled from this reality of the work of the priests from the Old Testament, right? These uh, priests in the Old Testament were tasked with maintaining the lamps that hung up in the temple. They were charged with trimming the wicks and polishing the glass and refilling the oil so those lamps would never be extinguished. And hopefully you can see how this imagery kind of winds itself together, but the priests and what they did there in the Old Testament were just mere shadows of the one who is our high priest that is Jesus Christ and as well as the work that he does as our Christ. You understand what I'm getting at? Jesus is this one who both supports, leads, guides, and comforts. Now, we spend so much time on this identity of what John is seeing, as, uh, of who Jesus is, because it correlates and connects directly with the rebuke that Jesus had for Ephesus. You see, Jesus exhorted them. He did encourage them because they did have, they, they, they were faithful and, and they had this great diligent work of holding to what is true. And they didn't allow for false truths to find a foothold within their church. They even hated the evil that God also hated as they abhorred what the Nicolaitans were about. Now, historians don't really know much about the Nicolaitans or what they stood for, but many believe that they created this kind of culture that allowed what we would call today progressive relativism to exist. The people that identified themselves as the Nicolaitans and and, and sort of followed in their ways, they thought that they could be and believe whatever their passions led them towards, regardless of what the God who created them had to say about it. They denied their true identity in the pursuit of open-handed personal beliefs. That's who they were. But while defending against that false truth, while defending what is true and standing up for what is right and doing it so tirelessly, the Ephesian church left something behind. Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Now, this could mean two things. It could mean that the church, while defending truth, forgot how to season their words and attitudes with grace and love. After all, this church was embattled constantly against false teachers. They were were continuously surrounded by a culture that constantly sought to disciple the church's people in, again, the ways of Rome. Therefore, it might have been easy for them to stand for what is right about Christ rather than love like Christ. It may have become simple for them to be right about Christ than to try to love like Christ. But this forgotten love, I believe, is more about the church drifting away from properly loving Jesus. In Maranatha, that's our battle. The same. That is our battle as well because it is the battle that every believer and every church in every age must wrestle with. We are constantly drawn away from where, what we love, constantly drawn back to the world in which we were rescued from. We all must wrestle against this because our actions do matter, but it's the condition of our heart that truly motivates how we live. Jesus, throughout this entire letter, I know we're not covering the entire thing, but Jesus, throughout Revelation, what he's doing is he's revealing yet again his zealous and jealous love for his people. And he shows us that through how he loves us, how he has and will conquer sin and death, just as he will put under his foot every and any evil that exists in this world. And as we look at that, as we Understand the gospel. Are we so comfortable with this relation that we too are just going through the motions? Well, we grasp hold of this love that we would never even be able to comprehend unless it's told to us. Are we too just going through the motions? Of course, Jesus wants our obedience. He wants us to stand for what is right. He wants our obedience, but he also desires our affections. Yes, of course, we are to labor. We have been given a life of purpose, but don't forget to love. Of course, be pure and not like the world, but don't forget to have proper passion and live with joy. And deeds can be good. But don't forget to be devoted to the one who gives us life. And then he says, to those who conquer, we are given a promise. Meaning, to those who by the power of the Holy Spirit overcome their love of the world. To those who know and believe and trust in Jesus, who is the Christ. To those who have faith centered in their love for him and one another. He will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the gift that we have. He's not promising us the good life now. He's promising us eternity with him forever. That's the good news. That's the great gift that we have been provided through Christ on the cross. And you see it there in Genesis 3. 
This connects us all the way back to Genesis 3. You see, in Genesis 3, just after the fall, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden because God was concerned that they would actually take, uh, they would eat from the tree of life and therefore remain in their sinful spiritual nature forever. So he had to remove them. Out of concern that they would eat from the tree of life, be given eternity, and remain where they were, God gave us death. Because they would have remained where they were forever. But now, because of Jesus, we are free to eat of that tree. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, it is now safe for us to eat of that tree. That's glorious. That's incredible because we have been given Christ's righteousness. And because we have been given Christ's righteousness, we can now approach the throne without fear for all eternity. We can remain in the presence of God. Maranatha, our love and affections, they matter. The motivations of our heart, they matter. But they must, we must seek to make them right internally before we evaluate them externally. Transformation in faith begins in our heart, in our very being, before they are seen on the outside. So in this way of talking about love, how Jesus says, this is what you have lost, you've forsaken, you've abandoned rather, you've left behind your first love, how do we know what we love? Well, tell me what you think about the most and I will know what you love. Listen to what you talk about the most, and you will hear what you love. Where is it that you spend the most of your time, and we will see what you love? What are you the most afraid of losing, and we will all learn what it is that you love the most? Maranatha, I I pray that our answer will all be the same. I pray that each and every one of us, as we recognize this this call and this encouragement, but this rebuke from Christ, that all of our hearts are bent towards that answer, that everything we need, everything that is to be seen and known and believed and loved is found only in the personhood of Jesus Christ. That's what's being laid out for us. That's what's offered to us. So it's given to us by Christ and the work that he's done on our behalf, how he is our high priest. He has made a way for each and every one of us to know him, to live in him. It's the great gift of the gospel. It's what we as Maranatha, as a church, proclaim. Because how is anyone going to believe this unless they hear it? And how will they hear it unless we preach it? And what are we to preach but the words of Jesus? Simple. It's about him and not about us. It's a great gift that we have with one another, and I pray that we continue to walk in this way, faithful with our love and our eyes set on Christ. If you would, please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your church. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. God, thank you so much for the gift of your love. Even though we don't deserve it, we grasp hold of it, recognizing that it is perfect and pure. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to know you, for giving us your spirit, which brings us life and 
guarantees our eternity with you. Help us, Lord, to walk this out as your body, proclaiming the goodness of your Son, honoring him, glorifying him in everything that we do, and enjoying him forever and ever. It's in his name that we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.